Well, it is a great joy to be here. Uh, I really look forward to the opportunity. Miles and I have been, been working together and doing some things together, but this is the first time we're able to see each other face to face. And I've looked forward. I've heard so much about your church here. It lives up to all the things that I've heard about it. There's, there's some real energy in this place. I, I can feel the Spirit of the Lord in our place, and, uh, and it's just a joy. We had an awesome time yesterday. For those of you who want to be writers, I think we downloaded a little bit for you, hoping that that will take you to the next level and uh, your writing abilities. So today will be a little bit different. And uh, I want to tell you a story, and, uh, and then I want to preach just a little bit. And uh, so uh, I was 26 years old. I had graduated from, from Bible college. Uh, I met my wife in Bible college. My dad uh, had been an alcoholic, electrician. And then he became a pastor. I lived three years in uh, Montana. Uh, I was a bit of a rebellious young preacher's kid. I guess that's what preacher's kids, a lot of them do. And, uh, but when I got saved, I got saved. And I wanted to go Bible college. I didn't know where I wanted to go, but I ended up in a Bible college in Canada. And that ended up being the right decision that I made. And uh, it was there that I met my wife. But an interesting thing happened when I was in Bible college. So the particular Bible college I went to, Prairie Bible Institute, which is now Prairie Bible College, was, a, was more focused on missionaries than developing pastors. So I would say probably 70% of the students ended up going all over the place. And being a young kid as I was, every time a missionary came in, so whenever they came in, it was like, that's where I want to go. And especially when they said Hawaii, Australia, those places, I really had a strong passion to go to those places. And so, so every time they would come, but then it would just sort of, it sort of drifted away until this group came from what's called the Worldwide Evangelization Crusade. And they came, and I went to listen to them. There was a small group. I went to listen to them. And that there were seven-point programs around the world there were seven places in the world that have not been evangelized by the gospel. One of those places was northern Mozambique. We're looking at 1967. And uh, if you're calculating, I turned 75 in just a couple of months. So you don't have to get out your calculator to figure it out. So... <clears throat> So on this, I, I was like, that's where I want to go. And it never left me. For the final two years of college, that's where I wanted to go. And uh, so I contacted Worldwide Evangelization Crusade, by the way, founded by C.T. Studd. I'm, I'm guessing that most of you have not heard of C.T. Studd. But if you have not heard of C.T. Studd, here's what I'm going to do. <laughs> so I just finished writing a book for Bill Wilson 
Uh, I don't know if you've heard of Bill Wilson, but in New York City, it's the largest Sunday school in the world. He, is, he has touched so many kids. This guy has lived a very difficult life. He's been shot, beat up, stolen, but he's still living. And he's, he's breaking, taking these young children and kids and transforming their very lives. So, so I've, I ghost wrote a couple of books for him, and I, a while back I got a a request to do another book for him, and it's a book of missionaries. So part of, part of the book's going to be a book of missionaries, and the other part is going to be six people whose lives have been changed, and they're all a part of Metro World, and these are people that are going all over the world. So, so the six traditional missionaries, I sort of got to choose who we're going to pick. Now, now, Bill Dill said, I want George Mueller, I want David Livingston, and I want Hudson Taylor. I get three, you get four. How's that for a deal? I said, okay, that's a good deal. So I put C.T. Studd, Slesser, Mueller, and I don't remember the other one. And by, So what I'm going to do is I, when this book comes out, I want to I get some books here because, because these stories, I'm t- they're so powerful. So C.T. Studd, was cricket player. No, it's not football. It's not <laughs> basketball. It is cricket. Mm, it's, it's a strange game, and every now and then it'll come up on ESPN, you know, when they have nothing else better going on, <laughs> and you'll see a cricket game and stuff. So there was a, th- a group called the Cambridge Seven. Seven of the best cricket players in the history of cricket to this day. If you go to England, you say Cambridge Seven. Those who grew up in England, they all know who these guys were. They were famous. One of them was C.T. Studd. So an evangelist comes to town. All seven of these guys get radically saved. Took the cricket cricket uh, stick, threw it aside, and they all went to China's missionaries. Just dropped everything and left. All that night, notoriety, everything. They went to China to be missionaries there. It'd be like the whole Celtics team, the famous you know, Bird and all of those guys. And the, it'd be, imagine seven of those guys, they get saved and they decide to go to Africa's missionary. That's exactly what happened. And then C.T. Todd ended up going Going to, uh, going to the Congo, and, uh, and there he died. And so, so he was the founder of a group called Worldwide Evangelization Crusade. I joined the group that my best buddy, no, I don't know him, my, my, the one that I love so much, I went and joined that missionary group. The good news was I was accepted. The bad news was I couldn't get into Mozambique. It was a Catholic country. So, so here's South Africa, way at the bottom. You go around the Cape. You go up the coast of, 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 of South Africa. You've been there. And then, boom, right there south, there's uh, Mozambique on the Indian Ocean. So I couldn't get in there because it was a Catholic country. They weren't allowing new Protestant missionaries in there. And so I didn't want to be, I didn't feel like I was ever called to be a pastor. So I wanted to do something exciting. 
So this boy who, who graduated from high school in Montana, who went to Bible college in Canada, goes to Philadelphia. And I lived, we lived in Philadelphia for two years. I can remember the first time when we were put in a, a story building, a three-story building here with three, two other couples living in a small building. And I remember, I remember going out, outside the first time in there and the guy standing on the corner. I said, that's the strangest cigarette I've ever seen. What kind of cigarettes are those? I never, wow, what's that smell like? He said, dude, where you come from? <laughs> I, he said, that's weed. I said, that's weird. Why are you smoking the weed, man? He says, that's marijuana. Oh, yeah, I heard about that once. So for two years, we lived in the inner city. And, and man, it was, it was a ride for us. And uh, this was the days of the hippies and the druggies and LSD. That, that, was the, that was the drug of the day. So this was from 68 to 70 when I was at Teen Challenge. They had a, they had a coffee house right downtown off of Rittenhouse Square, a very famous area. Where, and, and on the weekends, the druggies, five college students coming in, prostitutes, all of this stuff are cramming down there. So at 9 o'clock at night when the doors are open, they come flooding in here. I'm going to give you one. I'm going to open my up myself and share with you. Four years of Bible college, I figured I'm the man. <laughs> I know the Bible. <laughs> man, I, I'm, going to, I'm going to kill. I'm, these people are going to get saved. First time I'm there, my table, what do I get? I get these college students. And they're talking about Freud and Nietzsche and existentialism. And I'm going, four years of Bible college. I don't know what these guys are talking about. And this was quite an awareness for me, to be quite honest with you, that, that I had a, more of an intellectual understanding the scriptures, but I had not yet, I was saved, but I had not yet experienced the passion of Jesus and the power of the Holy Ghost. And I went home that night and I realized I need a different language. I need an experience with God. And that was coming. So after two years, the doors open, Nazarene preached, uh, Pastor in, in Mozambique said, I'll vouch for him, I'll bring him. So we, I went to WEC headquarters in Fort Washington outside of Philadelphia and uh, I went through some training there. And then my wife and I and our one daughter, who, was, who, by the way, today is her birthday. So, and my daughter just turned 50, which makes me feel very old right now. So she was born while we were in Teen Challenge. And so... And so we, we went to Toronto Institute of Linguistics, and there I, I went through linguistic training, cultural development, and, and trying to realize, because I'm going into a brand new culture, how do you adapt to culture? And, uh, and I wanted to be a CT stud kind of missionary. And what did that mean? That means you could not ask anybody could give you money. 
You could not, you could not send out itinerant people like, like the Methodists and the Assemblies of God. They send their people to their churches, and they try to raise money. George Mueller, this is a little interesting story. George Mueller made the decision he would never ask for money. He would trust God, but he would, he would, he would go right to the edge. He'd believe and trust God, and God always supplied. Now, he, he always got right to the edge. But he was, he was spending hundreds of thousands of dollars buying homes and stuff for these orphans that were on the streets and stuff. George Mueller influenced Hudson Taylor, C.T. Studd, and David Livingston. They decided they would live by that kind of a faith. And so we couldn't itinerate. We couldn't, we couldn't ask people for money. So this is what happened. So we moved to Portugal for 10 months studying Portuguese. We were not the typical missionaries. My life has never been typical anything, but we were not the typical missionaries. And, and I, I want to communicate to something to you about, so we talk a lot about faith, but there's a lifestyle of living, of trusting God that is beyond anything we can possibly do ourselves. We don't get faith. We receive the gift of faith to believe at that kind of level. And that's, that's where I was being tested for what was going to come. And so, of course, WEC is what they call. They found a home. They put us in a home. Guess what? One pastor could speak English who went up north during the week to leave me with his elderly family and nobody spoke English. So they babysitted our kids when we took the train into Lisbon to the teacher and uh, we did a, a lesson class for the first two weeks, no, first, first month, and then we got a professional teacher that we'd go see. So... So we're, we're listening. As soon as we went home, we we're using exactly what we got. And then after we were there for three or four weeks, they came up because now we're beginning to understand. They said, well, we can't keep any secrets from you because now you're understanding every single thing we're saying. And then so eventually we moved to Reboleda further south. So we had our own place together, which was really cool. We got associated with Assemblies of God, which was awesome. Their kids came over, you know. And it was, so, but here's what we were making. Two to three hundred dollars a month. And we were right on the edge all the time. How we survived this, I have not a clue. There was one time, this doesn't sound like faith, but in a sort of a strange way, it sort of was faith. We had zero. I had nothing. And we're waiting for a letter to arrive with money in it. It's not like I knew anyone was giving money, but you always went and looked and opened up. No money, no money, no money. So one day I, I went into a store before and I saw people were getting groceries and I saw the guys get, like doing a little da 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 da. Hmm. I went over to the guy and says, and I'm able to speak Portuguese now. I said, look, 
I'm an American, but I'm not an American like you would think I'm American. I'm just a poor missionary. We don't have any money. And, and I just, do you think I could get some bread and some milk, a little bit of stuff, and then, and then as soon as this money comes, I'll pay? He says, oh, Mel Davis. He says, oh, no. You have family, you have no kids. Yes, take whatever you want. Take whatever you want and then come pay whenever you can. Then another time, again, we, I had nothing. I had nothing. And I could not miss that language lesson. I walked all the way from Rabuleda to that lesson into, port, into Lisbon, up. Lisbon is like, the hills are like, all the way up there, seven hours to that lesson. I left very early. I come in, and I'm so, trying to, you know, look cool and stuff, walk in there. She says, Mayo Deus, my God, you know, why are you, what's the sweat? You know, it's, you don't look right. I said, well, uh, I just took a little while to get here. What are you talking? I says, well, I walked. She gave me $35. $35 was a lot, by the way. It doesn't sound like much, but it was a lot of money and stuff. So, so we're kind of learning, you know. And, and so the great thing is I learned. Now, this is 45 years ago, but I spoke perfect Portuguese. My, my Portuguese, they did not know I was American. They, because the language, because I, I dedicated myself. I spoke their language, know exactly what they did. And so, so finally the time had come, and now we're going to get a trip to Africa. At that time, everybody was flying. So by 1972, 71, everybody's flying, except for us other missionaries who are still going by ship. And I'm pretty sure that I was one of the last missionaries to go to Africa by ship. <laughs> so if you take Hudson Taylor and all of those guys in Slessor, they all went by ships. I was the last one. And so, so we got on Imperial, was the luxury liner, Portuguese luxury liner we went on, sort of. And I figured we were going to be third level, down at the bottom, open rooms, bunk beds, shared bathrooms, because that's all the money that we had. The guy that was the merchant that was handling our ticket, I told him what we had. He says, this is not good enough for me. You have two young kids. You're going to Africa as missionaries. I give you first class. And we didn't pay for it. Now, first class was a little small. <laughs> so we had bunk beds, you know. So, and, and then we had, a, uh, we had a, what do you call it, where the beds that you stretch out like that and you put them in that. So we had it in that. And the, the bathrooms were like that and stuff. But we were happy. So down we went through the coast of Africa. It took three weeks to get to, from Portugal to Mozambique. We went through the Azor Islands, got to go over there. We came down to Launda, uh, Angola. We stopped there, 
uh, drove around the city for a while, actually got some pizza and stuff. We came down around the Cape. We stopped at the Cape. That was amazing. Coming into the Cape and seeing, you know, Table, Table Rock Mountain and stuff and Robin Island, uh, that was amazing. And then we came around up and landed into Maputo, which it was Lorenzo Marx in that day because it was a Portuguese colony. It had been a Portuguese colony for 500, 500 years, and they had totally rebuilt that whole, that whole country. They were the largest distributor of cashews. Uh, I'm, if I remember, I want to say something very special about that. So we landed. The missionaries were there. They took us to our home. They had our home, and we were ready to start. So we went to the Nazarene church. We were there. We were working with them to help them. And then so he, he set us up. We had a, we had a little house meeting in, in town. We were working with those and sharing with them, doing a Bible study. Then he asked us to start a church in downtown Mozambique. For me to be the pastor, he wanted me to start a church in town. They had one in Matala, which, by the way, does anybody know of Roland and Heidi Baker? Have you ever heard of those names? Or Heidi had a, a, a place out in Matala when they moved there, and they were working with orphans and kids who, who needed help, and that's how they came to Mozambique and what they were doing. We started our drug rehab center in that same little town. So I started the church. You know, remember, I, my goal was not to be a preacher, but, but my ways are not his ways, and his ways are not our ways. We just submit to what he wants, not what we want. And it was amazing. The church grew, you know, uh, and, and it was expanded and stuff, and it was amazing. But that wasn't God's plan either. That was just a little shortcut. And so I met a kid on the streets, João, who was a drug addict, messed up, and I led him to Jesus. His life was radically changed. It was amazing. The guy was so excited about God, you know. And then Joan comes to me one day, and here's where it gets really interesting. And then we're going to get some really tough stuff I want to share with you. So I met Joan, and he comes to me one day and says, my brother just killed himself. He was a drug addict. He went to his, <clears throat> his uncle's seventh floor apartment building, jumped off the balcony and killed himself. He said, they're devastated. Donaldo, come see me. Come see me. Come come with me, come see my aunt and uncle. So I went there, talked with them, and, and tried, to, tried to help them, console them, talk with them. And so I just started telling a story. I said, I really feel bad for your nephew. It's sad. It's tragic. There's other kids out there I know. They're being devastated by drugs. Somebody's got to do something. I started talking to him about uh, Teen Challenge. One of my best friends in Teen Challenge was an ex-heroin addict, you know, a guy that had been on 30 years of bumping, you know, and just wasted his life. He was one of my best friends who had gotten saved. And so I'm telling these guys, you know, I said, here's the problem. I says, the problem is on the inside. It's in the heart. And, and psychology won't help them. Psychiatrists won't help them. Methadone won't happen. I don't think they had methadone back there. I know that's a big thing right now. They just didn't. They, I said, but here it is. The power of Jesus can change their lives. If they encounter God, I'm telling you right now, I've seen it happen. Your lives can change. And they're going, that's amazing. So two days later, 
and it wasn't a phone call. I don't know what it was because we didn't have phones or anything. So, but anyhow, anyhow, he, somehow he contacts me, says, I'm going to pick you up, and I want to introduce you to a friend of mine. Well, I thought, oh, that's cool. Maybe, maybe they have friends who have a drug, who has, their kids have drug problems, and maybe they need my help. So I'm thinking, oh, that's pretty cool. So he picks me up in his Mercedes. Yes, these people were wealthy, rich. I could tell by the condo we were in, they had a lot of money. And so he picks me up. I'm thinking, oh, we're going into their neighborhood. But what we're doing is we're getting closer and closer to downtown. And so we are in downtown. I says, where are we going? Oh, he says, that's right. I forgot to tell you where we're going. He says, I'm taking you to the office of the minister of health for all of Mozambique. And you're going to tell them your secret plan to change all the young people in Mozambique. Okay, I am 27 years old. I do not have a plan. For ch- I'm like, okay. So we're sitting in the lobby, waiting to walk through that door, and I'm praying. I'm saying, what am I to do? And, he's, and I hear the words, it's simple. Give it all you've got. Be brave and tell them the same thing you told your uncle. So I walk in. He's he's a big old guy. That was intimidating enough. And so we chat and stuff, and he was impressed with my Portuguese and stuff. So we sit down, and him and the uncle, hey, you know, get made, hey, this is Donaldo, you know, blah, 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 blah. And, uh, and now he's going to share with you your story for changing the lives of the people in Mozambique. And so here we go. I said, this is what can happen. I believe there's a plan. I believe that God can change the lives of these young people. If you will give me an opportunity, if you will give me some support here, if you will help me, I will work with them. We'll hit the streets. We'll reach these kids. We'll tell them about Jesus. And and people will get saved. In the back of my mind, I'm sure hoping that this thing works because this is the plan that I have. After it's all done, he looks at me and says, that's a good plan. I want you to come back in three days. The president of Mozambique has a council, and they've been exploring the problem of drugs. And you're going to come back, and you're going to tell them the plan that you have for changing the lives of young people in Mozambique. Well, that was bad enough just to deal with this guy. Now I'm dealing with a psychiatrist, top police officer, top educator. I'm dealing with some pretty educational people who all are about 20 or 30, 40 years older than I am. And in my mind, I'm looking, I'm thinking, they're going to look at me, and I'm a young idiot, and they're going to ask me, what's your education? Because I had that experience in Teen Challenge when I was dealing with a friend that was, in, that was in jail. I was trying to get him out, and they wouldn't have anything to do with me because what, what I know about anything. So anyhow, basically, I get up there. And I took Juan with me, so I, expl- I let Juan tell his story, how Jesus came into his life, and he got saved, you know. And then, and then I got up, and then I told him the plan, which I just told you the plan. So the first guy that raises his hand is the psychiatrist. 
And I'm thinking, I am dead in the water. I know exactly what he's going to do. And I'm thinking he's going to ask me, what's your education? What qualifies you to work with drug addicts? That's not what he said. He said, I've just gone to Europe. I've looked at every drug rehab out there. And to me, it looks like they're all total failures. He said, this is the craziest thing I've ever heard. I think you've got a plan. <laughs> right there, they decided, we're going we're gonna to rent you a place, a big old building out in Matala. We're going to furnish that place. Uh, oh, by the way, we know you only have a temporary visa. I was trying to hide that I had a temporary visa because every two months I had to go over to South Africa and renew it. I'm trying to hide from P, the secret police and stuff, because I don't know. I'm trying to be real careful. He says, I'm going to give you a permanent visa here in the country. I'm going to give you a permanent visa for your family. And you can invite anybody you want into Mozambique to help you. And we'll give them all permanent visas. Now, we want you to go work your plan. I, I am, I, I, I'm I am, walked out of that room, I am shocked. And then, I, then it all hit me. Uh, the plan. Okay. <laughs> the plan. Here's what we did. I have a wife, two little kids. That's our group. We're going to be the ones. So, so we went into there. I, th I can't remember part of this when the time frame was, but it was, it was real early. The priest of the local Catholic church, now the Protestants and the Catholics. Now, it's not like today because Catholics and Protestants get along a little bit better today. But in that country, they did not get along together. So, so the priest comes and he says, look, he says, I got these kids in our parish they don't believe in God. They, don't, you know, they, you know, they, they create problems and issues. And we've heard about your little, little house there. Would you do something with these kids? I said, that's great. So we set up weekly meetings, and these kids came. And so we had the pillows on the floors and everything. And, and, so, and so then we were doing worship stuff because Mickey could play the piano. We're doing worship stuff. We're, we're, and so we're... We're preaching the gospel, and, and more and more kids are coming, and it's just getting crazy amazing. And then what happens is, all of a sudden, two guys show up. Tom Bauer, Salu, Daka, Indabeli. They had just been, Salu was from Rhodesia, Zimbabwe, as it is now. They were in a YWAM camp, training camp. They had been there for a while. Tom was, Tom was from California. And he was a California dude for sure, ex-druggy, ex ex-hippie and all that stuff. And they drove in their little Morris Mini. You know, the Morris Minis are sort of famous now, but this Morris Mini he had, it was like holes in the, in the thing, the car. So somehow they made, those two made it. They heard about us and they show up. We said, come on in, we need help. So, so we got them rooms and stuff. And these guys were evangelists out the kazoo. I mean, these guys are hitting the streets. Top drug addict gets saved. Stop dealers get saved. Before we know it, we have six, seven kids there in, in the prison. We have kids coming in all the time in, in, in there. And people hanging out, you know, in, in there. And things are happening. And so, and so then the Catholic Church opens. 
bring your kids in and let them tell their story. So we're going from Catholic church to Catholic church, you know, and, and, and they're doing their thing. And sometimes I made those to those meetings sometimes because I was working with, with the government and stuff, working, trying to set things up, trying to get everything. <clears throat> now remember, how much money am I making? It was supposed to be two to three hundred dollars for our family. Now we're paying for food and for everything that we need. I get a letter from my dad, who's a pastor of a church, and he said, we just agreed to increase the pay that we're given to $600. It is like we hit the jackpot. I mean, it was like we are rich and stuff. And so, so it was just amazing. The kids getting baptized and, and, just, um, and all of this stuff is happening. I'm, I got to preach in different places, and we're talking to the churches and stuff and reaching out. And then, this is a little bit ahead of the time, but I'm going to share this part, and then I'm going to come back, because now it's going to get really dark for me. It's going to get... This is, where it, this is where things begin to happen in my life. So, so <clears throat> what I did was I got permission to hold a street meeting downtown. The first street meeting in the history of Mozambique. They never allowed to have any kind of thing like that. So I, let me just say this because I'll tell you a little bit more. Up in the north, <clears throat> Frolimo, a Marxist African group was fighting for independence. It was like a, a Vietnam War going on. So the Portuguese in the south were fighting the war. Hundreds and thousands had been killed on both sides, AK-47s and bomb and everything, and they're fighting. And, and so all of that's going on. And so in the midst of all of that, it's sort of peaceful where we're at and what's going on. So what I do is I, I reach out to some of the people, some of the YWAM people, Youth with a Mission kind of stuff, all of these people. We're reaching out. We get a whole bunch of team. We got bands. We got, we got it, was, it was just like, you know, Jesus people. All of these guys coming in, ex-druggies and, and worship teams and stuff. And, and the head of YWAM, I can't remember his name. He was the head of YWAM in South Africa. He comes. I got him to be the preacher and stuff. We had a, over 1,000 people <clears throat> in that little area right there where that, where that was at. <clears throat> and the whole city's like, what's going on and stuff. And then we're taking posters. And so we took like a paste on it. And we're pasting like the big old post. And we're pasting the Jesus only, you know, Jesus loves you. I'm putting these in Portuguese and stuff. It sounds really cool. But that got me into a lot of trouble. I didn't know it. So then, after Angola, Guinea-Bissau, and Mozambique had fighting the war, all of them for seven years, and the Portuguese did not have a dime left, and they finally gave independence to all of them, which that meant in Mozambique that the Marxist group were going to march down from city to city. All the people were happy until they took control. So on... On, July, on April 27 of 1975, full independence came. Now, the, the Department of Health said because of what we were doing, it was a good thing. They wanted me to stay. But the, the American embassy was, all, all Americans need to get out of here because we cannot, we cannot guarantee that some of you are going to be thrown in prison. You need to get out of here to find out what's going to happen. 
So we prayed, and we just believed that God wanted us to stay. Now, I was fairly confident we were going to be okay. I didn't know we would not be okay, but we stayed. And so on June 3rd, I was home having lunch. On July 4th, we were going to go to the American Embassy and celebrate the 4th of July. The kids were all excited. We're going to have hot dogs. We're going to have fun. You know, the embassy gets all these fine, cool things that we have in America. We're going to enjoy that. So on July 3rd, though, uh, there's a knock on the door. Oh, that's probably one of the guys from the center coming over to see me. I open up the door. Nice young African-American man, really good-looking guy, dressed really nice. He says, uh, are you Don Milam? I said, yes. He says, well, we have some issues. I said, issues? Yes, we need you to get in my car, and I'm going to take you downtown, and we're going to have a conversation. And so I got in his car, told my wife, I said, we'll resolve this thing because I'm working with the Department of Health. It's not going to be a big problem. So we took me down. I was interrogated for eight hours. They wanted to know, were you ever in Vietnam? Were you ever in the war? Do you work with the CIA? Do you work with the FBI? You know, were you ever involved with PED, which was a secret police, which all of us, white or black, were afraid of these guys. And none of this I was doing. But they accused me of counter-revolutionary activity. Sort of sounds cool, but it wasn't cool. And so I was put in a Jeep, three guys with AK-47s, taken to my home and searched for guns and weapons. And then brought back to prison, walked through the, the, the city prison of Mozambique, walked through that door, walked through up here on the right-hand side, opened up the door, signed my name, and gave me a blanket. And then they marched me through to this big open area. And so to the, straight ahead was one block, over here was one block, and over here was one block. And straight ahead was block number A, went into block number A, walked down six cell rooms, and over here to the left, walked in. It was already 10 o'clock at night. The two guys that were in there were already in their bed. I got in the bed, put a blanket over my head, and I said, God, what is happening? The next morning I woke up. Prisoners showed up. After I had gotten breakfast, which was a piece of bread and something in it, I don't know what it was, but I didn't eat that, but I ate the bread. They took me into their mess hall, made me take off my shoes, got on my ground, and told me to start cleaning the floor, and they're throwing food at me, knocking me around. And then I marched back to my room. Then they put me in a Jeep. They take me downtown, and they interrogate me for another four hours, and they brought me back to prison. And I did not see the outside of that prison for the next 298 days. So first person that met was Senor Cunha. And he was the head of our cell. He was a, a wonderful person. And he was there. He, was, he supported me, and he took me around. He says, you'll be okay, man. Just, just got to be cool. I says, I'm being cool, man. I'm chilling out, man. I ain't, I ain't creating no problems or anything. And so then the next day, Clesius 
who had come from Brazil, he came and he was put in prison the next day. So he showed up and he was in block C over here. And then two days later, Salu, my uh, Zimbabwean friend, he came and he was put over here in block B. And so we sort of gained together in this, this area. And so we, just, we started having prayer meetings in my cell block. We were meeting there. We are praying. We are worshiping God and stuff. Now, I've said all of this, and I'm pretty good on keeping my notes. I don't know. See how far am I at this? If I'm looking. It's a lot to remember, but I remember most of it. Okay, we got that far. So, so now we just we're just trying to we're just trying to settle in, trying to figure out what's going. First thing is Mickey and the three kids, because I had a son that was born in Mozambique. My wife and three kids show up for a visited prison. And so they come in out we have there's a big yard out there where we go and have the visits and stuff. <clears throat> And so what we worked out was she would bring us food once a day because we didn't, we didn't really have any food. You could get the bread every day. You could get, you get, get water, but there wasn't enough food for everybody. So Mickey would bring in as much food as she could, and then we just shared it with people as much as we could, you know. And so, uh, so I, at least I was getting to see her. And the kids always loved to get, you know, so... So we got a mercenary guy, we got a murderer, we got these people, and you're putting them on their shoulders, and I'm just like checking the dudes out, you know, who's, the, the kids, man, they're just loving the kids, you know, they didn't care, you know, it didn't matter to them. And, uh, and you know, there were, there, were, there were Africans in there, there were Indians in there, there was white dudes in there, it was just a hodgepodge of all these people in there. And uh, some of them were, were millionaires. In my block, there were two millionaires. They, these were guys who owned, you know, big companies and stuff and enterprises, and they were thrown in prison. And, they, and the state took over all, all of the, biz, all the businesses, all the industries. They took control over that, very Marxist and, and, and that whole thing. Freedom was being sucked in like that. It was being, being reduced down. And, but the African people were very excited. And to be quite truthful, this needed to happen. The Portuguese had controlled that. They, they need, the people needed to have their own freedom. Unfortunately, it had to be Marxist people, and the people themselves were suffering. There were, there were African pastors that were being killed. There were being African pastors taken to the beach, dig a big hole, put them in the hole, and when the tide came in, they killed them. They were sending up to re-education camps up, to the, up into the north. And they were never seen again. And in fact, the American embassy, when I was released at the airport, he told me that was the plan for you, not the other ones. The plan for me was they wanted to send me to a re-education camp in the north, and they wanted to make, uh, make a plan out of me. They wanted to demonstrate something, and they never wanted to release me ever. That was the plan. For whatever reason, it never happened. We know the reason why it never happened, because God had a different plan. He wanted me to be a publisher. So I'm a publisher now. So. But I just had to get through all this crap I'm going through. Crap, is okay. I'm trying to get through all this stuff that I'm going through right now. And so, so in some parts it was, it was amazing. I mean, we have meetings in our room. People are getting saved, you know, witnessing to guys. I had, so I have, 
how big is, let's say, how, how many can you get? So let's say two bunk beds here, two bunk beds here, and then do, 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 two bunk beds here. That's maybe, this is maybe the room that we're in. So it wasn't too bad when it was three, but when it was seven and eight, and they kept bringing more people in, so, so the bunk beds are all taken up and two guys are laying on the floor. But what do I get? I get three ex-special force Portuguese guys that are mean, nasty dudes. I mean, these guys are like this. The guy's like, what are you doing, dude? Man, who are you from? Where are you from? You know, it's like, hey, I'm on your side, man. We're brothers, you know. So here's, here's, here's my plan. I don't know where this plan came from. It's hard to believe it was the Holy Spirit, but maybe it was. In my mind, I says, I am going to make friends with the meanest, baddest guys in prison. And if I'm their friend, they'll look out for me. Because, listen, there ain't no way I'm looking out for me. There ain't no way I'm dealing. You know, I don't know karate. I don't know any of that stuff. I'm a preacher, man. I just, uh, peace, man. I'm, that's all I am, you know. So, so these guys, they fell in love with me. And they all get saved. It's like, whoa, it's like the Holy Ghost, you know. It's like, this is, this, man, this is crazy. It's like, I can't believe this is going on. I'm only 28 years old at the time. When I think about it now, I just cannot imagine all of this stuff. I, don't, I haven't told this story. I haven't told this story in a long time. And when I say it, even when I'm telling you this, it's hard to believe that I actually went through this. So, and then they had a Catholic chapel. So they want, because I was the best Portuguese speaker, I became the, the prison chaplain. I was a prisoner, but I was a chaplain. So we, we preach, you know. So these guys are all coming. And then another time, so then they're going to have re-education class. They're going to re-educate us. Good luck at that. So, so they have all of these all these special forces guys, mean, dirty, nasty guys that just want to kill these guys, you know, you put me in prison, you know. So they, they have a meeting. So you have these guys here, and so, so we're going to have a Q&A, you know. Is there anything that you don't like? So this one tough guy, he's a mean, bad dude, he says, well, you just tell them in Portuguese, we're going to cut his neck off. The first time we get an opportunity, one of your soldiers is going to go by, we're going to bust him up, you know, we're gonna, and we, you, we don't like this, we shouldn't be here, and so just tell them. <laughs> I softened it a little bit in Portuguese, because I ain't telling them that at all, so, and they're all wondering, wow, that was pretty interesting, they didn't get mad at all. Yeah, you know, it's just because of the way I talk, you know, they didn't get them upset and stuff, so, so anyhow, that worked out. Another re-education class outside, they're going at it, you know, and it's, you know, there is no God, you know, and religion is, is an opiate of the people, you know, and, and they're going on and on and on, and, and we're just all looking at, and all of a sudden, I'm looking over here, there's big dark clouds. I'm thinking, uh-oh, here comes Jesus. <laughs> this big dark cloud and just kaboom, this torrential downfall hits a and while he's standing there, we're all running for the inside and stuff, and that was the end of that. And then there was another guy. This is my favorite story. So this other guy, 
He's sitting outside. You probably don't believe this story at all. You think I'm just making it up because it does sort of sound like they're making it up. But I could see these guys. I still, I can't remember what my wife asked me to do two hours ago, but I can remember <laughs> this really, really well. You know, it sort of stands out in your mind, you know. So, so there was this guy, like scars on his face, you know, a bad dude, and he had a lawn chair. He's the only guy that has a lawn chair, so I think he's special, you know. So when they open up the, you could go outside and there was a soccer field and stuff, and guys would walk around, and some of the special forces guy did their exercising and stuff, and then other people just walked around to get a little bit of exercise. So I figured that's the meanest, baddest guy. I think he's the one. So I go over and sit by him, and uh, hey, you know, my name's Ronaldo. You know, how you doing? He says. He said, you're sort of a brave guy. I said, what do you mean? He said, well, nobody wants to sit with me because they know I'm the beatest, baddest guy. I said, I don't know. I just, you know, I'm the kind of guy that likes stories. I kind of like, what's your story, you know? So then he tells me, now this is a long time ago. This is in the, back in the 70s, so, so he might have been 50 years old or more. So he fought in the Italian, with Italians in World War II. He was captured and put in a prison of war camp in South uh, in South Africa, and it was there till the end of World War II. When he came out, he started dealing in drugs, underground casinos and stuff, and then he moved to Mozambique and started an underground casino. And guess who were, were the big boys who watched over the underground casino? It was the three boys that were staying in my the Special Forces guy. They were the guys that were working. So they all got busted and put in prison. So I get their buddies, you know, the guys that were, you know, taking care of the uh, these are the underground casino, and this guy's the big guy. So he's telling me a story, you know, whacking people, sh- killing people, you doing drugs, you take my drug, I'm fine, whacking them, you know, we're whack. So then, so that we had some interesting conversations. So then a few days later, somebody comes up to me and says, uh, hey, you know what? You're, you're friends with that guy, aren't you? Yeah, you know, you know, interesting conversation. He said, well, they put a word out. If anybody messes with Milam, it's going to be a serious problem for them. Nobody touches this guy. Now, uh, now the word had gone out because my dad knew about it, and there was an organization, I can't remember the name of it, out of Canada, but they had a little bracelet, and they were for Christians in, in prisons in foreign countries. And they had a little bracelet with my name on it, imprisoned and praying for me to get rich. So there were thousands, hundreds of thousands of people praying for us and stuff for all of us, not just me, everybody else that, that were my friends that were there and stuff. And so, so, so pff, all the letters are coming in. Did I get any letters? I didn't get any letters. My wife is, is le- sending letters to me, trying to communicate. My dad, you know, the church is doing it. Everybody's sending no letters. So all of a sudden one day, you know, one of the guards comes in. And I said, I got some letters here. <laughs> that dude over there, we ain't messing with that guy. He says, he says either you give his letters to him or I'm going to kill somebody here. One of you guys are going to get whacked, you know. So then I got all these letters. It's like, sounds unreal, doesn't it? It's just like crazy. And so I'm laughing, but it wasn't funny really at all. This is not really that funny. It is now. I feel really good. It's a cool story to tell. So anyhow, that's going on. But when I first came into prison, I was, there was so much fear. It's just like I'm never in a situation. Like, How am I going to survive this? What am I going to do? And it was about... It was about Maybe, maybe 15 or 20 days 
I'm kind of in the grip of anxiety and fear. How am I going to get through this? This is, I, I don't know how I'm going to survive this and what's happening. Where's God? You know, God has disappeared. So, so you know, God, you call me to, Mich- to Mozambique. You're, you're doing this supernatural miracle and all these things of the plan that I have. Well, you gave me the plan and these people are getting saved. And now, and now look at me. I'm in prison. What's happening? Where are you at? What's going on, God? It was almost like there was an eclipse of God. It was like a big cloud went over. God disappeared, you know. It's like, where's he at? What's happening? Why? 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 And then there was something on the inside of me. It was changing. There was a, I call it an energy. It's a power that was happening in my life was my introduction to empowering presence of God's grace. You see, God gives us grace. God enables us to be able to do things we cannot do. God enables us to do things. God makes us, this is my favorite phrase, God makes us bigger than we really are. You think that preacher is a great preacher? It's got nothing to do with him. It's got everything to do about the gifts. God empowers us. He enables us. He gives us favor. He gives us anointing. He brings us to the place and He makes things grow. It's all about God. I became bigger than I really was. I became braver than I really was. So what happens is a soldier, Fernando, one of the big, big leaders, walks into my cell room one day, and he said, yeah, we're going to whack those Americans, you know. The Vietnam is going, and, you know, Viet Cong are going to destroy them, and, went, and I can't say nothing. And then I saw his, his pants are falling down, because these soldiers didn't have a lot of money. And I said, the Lord says, give him your belt. It's not a big thing. You don't need a belt anyhow right now. Give him your belt. I take off my belt. This sounds really crazy. I take off my belt. I said, Fernando, I see you don't have a belt. I want to give it to you because I love you. And this guy, I'm going to tell you in a second why it was just as difficult. He took the belt and walked out. Something changed. Now, this Fernando, I hadn't been in prison that long but anybody that tried to escape, they were tortured. They'd bring all the soldiers out, and here's what they would do. They would put their arms like this. Have you ever heard the phrase Chinese torture? I've seen it now. I've seen what they, they take it, and they tie this elbow here. Pull it till the elbows touch. And they take it up a notch, pull it out till they rip them right out of their shoulders. And they're screaming and hollering. And you go to bed at night just thinking about it and looking at that. There was another guy that I'd become friends with, and he went crazy. He just, he just lost his senses, and they put him in solitary confinement. So at one time, they open up the cell, and they're giving him food, and he took the food, and he threw it right in the soldier's face and ran out, and the guy comes with the AK-47. Boom! I heard it all through. I ran out of myself and ran down. I said, oh, my God, it's him. And I, I reached down, and I'm holding big old blows out right here. There's blood all over the safe. I've never seen things like this. So I'm just praying for him. They took him back to the hospital, sewed him up, 
brought him back and put him in solitary confinement. A few days later, somebody comes in, and I can't remember his name, says, come in and see me. And uh, so I came and see me. He says, would you just read the Bible to me? So I went and I would read the Bible to him every day. He came into his right mind. He was healed. And God just touched him. I'm like, I, I can't, I can't, this is, wasn't me. I just, I, I'm not saying that. It was just, it was just the power of God that I'd never experienced before. This Bible college kid who thought he knew everything, now I knew nothing, but I knew him who knew everything. And he was downloading information. He's downloading insight. He's downloading secrets to be able to walk through those difficult times and stuff. And then another day, and the power's there, the energy's there. The another day, the soldier comes and picks me up and says, come with me. And then I follow, and there's six other guys with me, and they take me out in the patio, close the door, and there's only a six guy. And we've just walked outside, maybe about six or seven, maybe ten feet out, and we're all given a shovel. And we're given a shovel, and we're told, dig a hole. Dig a hole. And we did that, of course, it's sand, it's easy. So we did that for two or three hours, and we have maybe four or five feet like that. Everybody up, stand up behind. So here's the hole. So we're standing like that, and there's the hole, standing behind it. Our backs to the soldiers with their AK-47s, and we're hearing the click behind us. And we know in just a few minutes those guns are going to go off, and we'll be laying in that hole, and they'll, they'll throw it over. So I'm just standing there, and I'm saying, I'm coming home, Jesus. The, the courage was there. I says, if it's here, it's here. If this ends here, it ends here. My family will get through. I will stay through it. The power of grace. Grace empowers us. If we can tap into the power of grace. It's not God's riches at Christ's extent. It's not some kind of cool little thing, you know. Grace is an empowering thing. God has given us grace that we might be able to accomplish the things He's called us to do. And so it's making me bigger, braver than I really was. And I stood there that moment, and the soldiers started laughing. They said, we don't like your hole. Fill it up and get back in your cells. We might do this another day. So back in I went. So I'm thinking, I'm going to reach Fernando one way or another. I'm going to reach this guy. So I've already made some progress. Now, you're, I, I'm sort of embarrassed, but look, it's God. So what am I going to do? If God says to do this, I just do it. So I noticed Fernando liked to smoke cigarettes. And I noticed that he, you know, because I'm observing, I'm trying to, I'm watching everything for opportunities. And I notice he's always, he's always asking people for cigarettes. So I told my wife, I said, hey, just be cool, but would you buy a carton of cigarettes next time you come, because Fernando's always at the gate letting people in. Just buy him something. I, this is important to him. It'll, he'll enjoy that. You know, I hope he doesn't get cancer and die. That's not my idea at all. 
Just let him have this card. So he gets the card. A little bit, a few hours later, after all the visitors come, runs in the bam, 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 bam. Milam, come follow me. I was like, oh, what did I do next? So he marches me up to the front, takes me to the right side, opens up a, an empty cell, and Mickey's in there. He says, I like you now. You got two hours with your wife. I don't know what to know. I don't want to know what's going on in that room, but I'm going to close that door for two hours, and you can be together. He changed radically. He just... So, so now we're talking power of grace, the power of love. Love changes people. You take anger and you throw love right back in its face. You throw that love right back. You don't become angry at them. You don't become resistant to them. You love them and you care for them. And I discovered I'm learning more in 300 days in that prison than I learned probably in all of my years in Bible college. So in December, six months later, my home had been robbed. They had come into the middle of the night, robbed while my kids and my wife were in there. They came in, they stole everything we had. It's like, okay, God, so you're going to put me in prison. You're going to have all of our stuff stolen. What's going on here? And he said, there'll be some more coming, but it's going to make you stronger. And back of my mind says, I think I'm strong enough, God. I don't need any more strong stuff. So anyhow, that house is broken in. So then, so one of the prisoners, one of the missionaries who had left said, hey, this guy has this key. You can have our home. I won't tell you what denomination it was, but they have a lot of money. So this guy's house... It ain't nothing like the house we had. It is a nice, beautiful homes and stuff, you know. So they stayed in that home and stuff. So all of a sudden, one day, the police shows up, and they says, hey, you must come with us. And Mickey says, I'm not going with you, you know. It's like these guys are soldiers and stuff. I ain't going to no woman's prison and stuff. So one of the missionaries who could speak Shangan, which was the local language, he said, no, 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 no. No, they found your stuff. Come with us, and they want you to look at your stuff. So they take us, you know, into one of the, one of the, the byros there and took them in there. And so you, you watch right here. So, <laughs> so they go in there. Boom! All these, all these guys got stuff and the, and the shoulders going up. <laughs> There's like war going on. Bullets flying everywhere. Guys are flying out of there. They clean it out. They, they make it every safe. Okay, it's very safe now. You could come in. <laughs> She's like, oh, yeah. So she take her in. Oh, that's my bed. That's my couch. That's that, that. Because she had already sold it to one of our African friends, but they lost it. He says, no, because he paid for it. She says, he says, no, I trust you. I believe, that, I believe that something will happen. So anyhow, they got the furniture, gave that all back, and, and uh, so they stayed there. And then in, December, in, the, in the meantime, they were throwing people in prison, people broken in. And just, and just so the last time we were together, I told him, you need to go home. It's just, you need to go home. So my dad got tickets and stuff. So in December... They were gone. I didn't know if they made it out or not because a major, major hurricane-type storm had hit. And she's in a, uh, a Volkswagen Combi. That's what we call them, a Volkswagen Combi. We had a pop-up thing, you know, that you could get in, you know. And, and so she's driving to the airport, and one of our African friends, we were going to give her the van so she could sell it so she could go back to Portugal. So, so she's driving down the road, you know where the engine's at, right? It's in the back there. 
It's sort of sitting down like that, and the water's way above the window. That engine is totally in water. She drove all the way to the airport till she finally got above ground, and that thing kept going. And they gave it to Maria Zay, and she drove it, and she sold it and had that money to be able to go to Portugal. So, so now I have four months, I think. Any time is going to happen, day by day, by day by day, the time went. And, uh, and it just became more difficult and more challenging. I already quoted this yesterday, but I walked a mile with pleasure. She chattered all the way. But left me none the wiser for all she had to say. I walked a mile with sorrow. Never a word said she. But all oh, the things I learned and sorrow walk with me. And I think I need my phone for this Bible verse, which is it here? Okay. Does somebody have Psalms 13 verse 5? Does somebody have a Bible, Psalms 13, 5? I can continue the story and then if you can just read that verse for me. So, and, and, and the, as soon as you find the verse, so in the midst of this I'm struggling, you know, just, just so, so one day later because now there were some of the Africans that were getting food to us. So Mickey had talked with them, and now they had taken her place. You know, they had given her money, and so they were sending food. So I get a, a bunch of bananas. Oh, that's cool. We love bananas. You know? and, and so we open up the bananas and sharing. So I took mine and peeled it back, and underneath it said, we're safe at home. She had made it to the airport. She just wrote that note, and that was the only way to get message into it. Do you have, do you have that? So, verse number five, read that. Go ahead. But I have trusted in your mercy. My heart shall rejoice in your salvation. So, when I read that, so in the beginning in chapter one, I said, Why are you out there? Why have you done this, God? Why have you done this? But he said, and one of the verses says, but my heart shall rejoice because one says, you have saved me. Another one says, you have set me free. This was like about 30 days before my release. I'm thinking, I believe that. I believe it's coming to the end. I believe it's coming to the end. On day number 299, soldier comes up and says, come up. We have some visitors. I never got visitors that were allowed to see me. And 299 days, people came from South Africa trying to see me. They were never allowed to see me. So I got to open up the door. I'm thinking, those are American dudes because I can tell the way they're dressed. So these are American dudes. And there were two representatives from the United States Embassy in Mozambique. The American Embassy never, ever were allowed to visit me and try to resolve our situation. And he and, and and so let me back up a little bit because about two hours before that 
I, had, I got ahead of myself. There was a knock on my cell, and they brought me to the front of the prison, and there was an African detective there, and he said, you have been expelled from Mozambique. You've got to get out of this country right away. But we ain't paying for anything, and you can't get out until you have tickets. I'm thinking, good news, bad news. I'm being expelled from the country. Now, how do I get out there? So we're going back. Okay, so we need to, we need to write something out. We've got to figure out next time these people are visiting. We've got to let them know. And then if you go tell the American Embassy, let them know that I've been expelled and stuff. So what happened was, I learned later, there was a believer that was working at the police department. They saw a note that I'd been expelled. They got out, called the American Embassy, and said, he's been expelled. That's the order. So then these two guys show up. They said, look, we'll try and get you the tickets. But, but people are leaving in the droves, leaving the country. It's going to be hard to get tickets. It, it might take you a couple of weeks to get out. I said, I don't care. As long as we know I'm going out, that's good. The next day they show up. You said, you will not believe it. It's a miracle. We were standing there, and people's like trying to get tickets, you know, and everything. And, uh, and all of a sudden, somebody lay down, here's two tickets I don't need. The guy grabbed them. He said, Whatever, wherever they're going, as long as we can get them to South Africa, these tickets will work. They took the tickets. They came back, the next, they came back later that afternoon, and they said, we got your tickets. You're flying out tomorrow. Day 300. So my friend Clesius, my, my Brazilian friend, <clears throat> he was depressed because he was expelled also. And then <clears throat> same thing happened to him. Same thing with the tickets. He was going to fly out on the same day. The only sad part of this story is my friend Salu Naka Endebel because he was left behind. And they wanted to make a guerrilla warfare out of him. They wanted to make a soldier out of him and send them into Zimbabwe to fight for independence because that was still a British empire there. So as they had been fighting for independence, they want him to be a guerrilla. And, and so he didn't fight that. He didn't fight that. So he went on another four, five, six months and was finally released. And then he became a missionary in South and Western Africa. And then, and then he, did, he did die about five or ten years ago. I connected with his son who were in Europe and told them all the kind of stories, how awesome he is that. The man of faith that is what you, you should be faith. I said, hey, he did a book. This is your, da your dad wrote this book. Here's this book. We'll get this book to you and stuff. And so, so we came home and... Uh, and so it was, it was amazing. It took a while for me. If you could imagine being in that, in that environment, that food, beat Mickey at the airport. And what they had done is they had put us aside. There were reporters there. I mean, the buzz was everything on this thing. It was, it was already world news and articles in newspapers, which I still have them. So one of the guys, Hugh Freeberg, who was in prison with me, a Nazarene pris uh, uh, prisoner, we got out together. Our wives were there. We put them in the room. We were able to talk with each other. Then they brought them out. My dad and mom was there. Reporters were there. We were sharing the stories and stuff and put in, put in the car, drove back from JFK to home. I remember the first day opening up, going outside. It's like I went into the grocery store. It's like. 
I'll eat broccoli. I hate broccoli, but I'll eat broccoli, man. I'll eat anything, you know. So just a real short story, and then I'm, then I'm just going to talk a little bit about grace. So so came to that. Uh, so I came home. I was pastor of my dad for five years, then started a church in Chambersburg, Pennsylvania, where Don Norai, who's the owner of Destiny Image, he, he, I made him an elder in the church. We helped him start his first church, paid him money. Uh, I was his first acquisition agent guy, helped him get published his first, uh, first book that was done. Uh, and then we started having some problems in our marriage and with our kids. And I was burnt out. Somehow the healing just hadn't been complete. I'd gone straight into ministry. And I said, I need a break. The break ended up being seven years. As hard as it is to believe, I sort of deconstructed, stopped reading the Bible. I got a job as a painter. What do missionaries do? Missionaries don't know a whole lot, you know. So I paint, you know, anybody can paint. Well, not anybody can paint if you really know real paintings like so. Then I got a, I became very successful project manager, making a lot of money, but but I had I had left kind of my first love, you might say. Even though I had experienced the power of God, I've experienced grace. But this is one one thing that I found. When I was on the plane, I felt it leave. It's like the empowering presence that you needed in that hour, you don't need now. But when you needed, I heard God say, it will come back. And, and what happened after those seven years, I started crying. I'd come home, I'd say, I just want you I don't care if I'm a preacher. I don't care if I ever do anything. I'll just continue being a painter and working with these roughnecks. I just, I just want you to come back. I want you to trust me. I want you to love me. I want to feel your presence. God, I want this. So all this now, now you know I'm not a prophet, although I see things sometimes, you know. So, so I don't do personal prophecies. I can make them up, but they don't really work. <laughs> Sometimes I think I got personal prophecies that were made up. You know? So, but, but, so I didn't, I've never seen angels, you know, you guys, you know, Charlie and all you, you see angels, you do things, you do all, you know, all that stuff. I don't do that. So in the middle of the night, I have to get up at 630. In the middle of the, I'm dead sleep, man. These are the days when I could sleep at nighttime. So I could sleep, and then all of a sudden in the middle of it, I hear these words, my son, why are you robbing me of my glory? It's like, wow. I look at the clock. Oh, God, of course you have to come in. Why can't you come, you know, after I get home from work, you know? So, I, so I, how I did that, I don't know. I went back to sleep. Happens again. It happens three times. Of course, it happens three times. That's sort of weird too. 
God is strange, man. <laughs> so after that, I said, might as well get up. I'm going to go downstairs. I pull out my New American Standard Bible, which is my favorite Bible in the whole world, my favorite version. I open it up. Now, I know you're not supposed to do this. Don't do this because you're not supposed to do it. So I open up the Bible. You have this treasure and an earthen vessel. I'm thinking, that's for me. This old, earthen, dilapidated body, there's a treasure in there, and I didn't know it. So I'm sitting there, and all of a sudden, the living room, and it's a small living room, the whole living room opens up like this, and I'm outside in the woods, and there's this fireplace. I'm like, <laughs> I'm not used to this. Some of you guys are used to this. I'm not used to this. This, this, was, this is weird. So there's this fireplace going on, and then I see all these kids and older people. They're all laughing, dancing. It was like worship here, you know. They're, they're celebrating God. They're worshiping, and I'm crying, God. I'm, I'm bawling as I'm watching this. It was just like I was right out there. And I turned, and there's a tree there. Sitting next to the tree is a guy with his foot against a tree, leaning around and smiling, watching all of this. I'm looking at the guy, and he turns and he looks right at me. It's Jesus. Now, I don't know what Jesus looks like, but I felt that's Jesus. And he looks straight at me and says, Don, I never left you. I've always been here. Come follow me because I have a plan for you. The next day I went and told my boss. God spoke to me in the middle of the night. Now, we're, these, are, these are some rough guys. You know? And three times God says, you know, God says, don't rob me my glory. I had this vision. God says he's got a plan for my life, so I'm going to retire. He says, no, no, I'll, I'll, I'll get you. You'll have your own truck. I'll, I'll add your, I says, but God said, he says, he says, sort of unfair. I can't, I don't think I can outbeat God, you know. <laughs> you seem sort of committed. And then, you know, I, I told the story, you know, a few days later, Don Noren from Destiny Image called and he said in the middle of the night, God had a dream and he said, call Don Milam, he's key, you're to be a publisher. So the life has changed, you know, but so, one dark night, two dark nights, one more dark night. So in 2014, my wife had been struggling with cancer for, for almost 20 years. It was a slow growing, but in the last two or threes, it started getting, getting worse until she was bedridden the last two months. You know, see, because I'm a publisher, I have lots of friends, as I said yesterday. Everybody wants to know Don Myler. Would you help me get my book published? I'll try. So Bill Johnson, Benny Hinn, Oral Roberts, and many others have prayed for my wife. And she died. Another dark night. Another cloud. 46 years. But here's the story that it might not fit your theology. A lot of things don't fit my theology. 
So, so my wife trusted God in the midst of all of that. She never doubted God until God took her. So you see, sometimes God delivers you out of something, and sometimes God delivers you through something. And sometimes, I don't believe God automatically just decides this. God just looks and sees, who can I trust in this situation to be a story of my grace and my power? And so Mickey walked through this and trusted in the darkest night when she was dying. She trusted God. So some get a powerful testimony. God can heal. And some get a story that God can deliver you. God can make you strong and walk through the most difficult thing you could imagine. That is the power of grace. You see, grace has two wings. Now I'm going metaphors on you, similes. Grace is like the two wings of an eagle. And one of them is outrageous, scandalous, radical, unconditional love. And the other is an empowering presence, a power that enables you. So imagine that in any situation, I believe that the power is always there. That God's always there when you feel rejected, when you're going through suffering and pain, when you feel like maybe God has rejected you, when you feel like there's a cloud over you. But the fact is that the clouds always disappear. Rabbi Akiba, right after the, after the destruction of Jerusalem, they gathered all the rabbis together and they said, what are we going to say to the next generation? Because we believe to God. We believe the Messiah come. He was going to establish the kingdom of God and the earth and now they've been destroyed and the Jews have been. What are we going to tell to the next generations of the wrestling? And Rabbi Akiba said, this is the answer. God has not abandoned his people. God has come and he's entered into us. He's come into us, and He stands with us, and He sympathizes with us. He cares for us. He's there. You don't see Him there. That's why you don't see Him, because He's here. Christ in you, empowering you, manifesting you. There's a story there during the Holocaust, a young boy. Is taken and put on a platform, and a rope is being put around his neck, and all the Jews are watching him. My God, one of the yanks out, where is God? And another Jew says, that's God on that platform with a rope put around his neck. That is God. That's Jesus. He's there standing with that boy and comforting as he breathes his last breath and takes him through the portals of heaven to be with his Father. So I don't know what you've gone through in your life. It might not be as dramatic as my life, but it doesn't matter 
My story is no better than your story. So whatever you've gone through, if you've gone through a divorce, if you've gone through abuse, if you've gone through sickness, if you've gone through trouble, if you've gone through rejection, if you've gone through things that people have said against you, if you've gone through things you don't feel like God is there, what is that? I want to tell you today that God's grace is there. He's there. He loves you. He cares for you. And if you open your spirit, he will empower you. It is the presence of God. I love the presence of God as we were singing today and worshiping. The presence of God empowers me. When the presence doesn't feel there, I've gone through some difficult times physically, and sometimes I wonder, where's he's at? But I know he's always there. He's always with me. He will empower me. And then I determine that I put on my grace suit. Then I get strong and say, I'm going to walk through this thing. I don't care if I have AFib. I don't care if I have a bad knee I've gone through. I don't care if the things I have and deals with and stuff, my heart issues. I ain't going to be strong. I'm going to walk through this. Lots of people are praying for me. Because they want me to be around so I can help them write books and edit them. <laughs> so they're all praying for me. So I don't care. I got a whole prayer team, you know, that just say, oh, come on, Don, hang in there, man. We're praying, man. You got to get, we, we got five more books that we got. You got you to make it to 90 years old. Yeah, you think you can make it 100? Well, I don't know. We're, we're, we're going to run it. I love you. And I just pray that somehow you feel kind of that my story somehow you can identify with it. And that, that in any moment, at any place, it's always there. It's always available. Sometimes you go through life, you know, and you're cruising along, no problem. You, don't, you, know, you know he's there and stuff. But other times you really need it. You need, you need something to be there. It's always there. If you just trust him, just be there, he'll come, he'll touch you. Powering presence, radical love, Unconditional. Spurgeon said, talked about cheap grace and grace that costs something. Grace is not a license to sin. Grace is an empowerment that makes you to live a holy life that manifests His glory. Amen. I love you. <laughs> Just let's stand. Let's stand together. Some of some of us right now you need scandalous love. Thank you. Just raise your hands up to heaven, really. There's something that Dawn is released in the room because of what he's been through. See, we don't understand the scandalous love. We don't understand that part of grace. That he's continually pouring out his love to us, even when we feel rejected. And some of you need this empowerment that empowers you to do everything God's called you to, but never forgetting about the fact that love wins in every case.
Father, we thank you right now. Lord, I ask that you just release. Lord, I receive. I receive. You just receive right now. I receive this incredible grace, God, that you we can't even understand. We can't even know fully until it's upon us. So Holy Spirit, I ask that there's just a revelation, a knowing, an impartation. And Lord, may there be a grace on this generation to just completely fall in love with you, just give ourselves completely to you. release the strength of heaven on everyone in this room that just heard these testimonies, these incredible testimonies. Father, we thank you. We just receive right now. Thank you for your grace on Don's life, Lord, I thank you for your love and your power that was just revealed in his testimony. God, we just step into the reality of that, even though we already stand in it, but we step deeper into that, acknowledging you in every part of our lives. I'll just say for myself, I've not really gone through anything. gone through some things but it just should shift the paradigm in your mind right now that whole he's an amazing storyteller but it opens up to us today what you are capable of handling and what you're capable of stepping into and so Father we release we step into it, Lord. We receive and live and walk. When we walk out these doors today, God, we, we ask that you've set upon us the grace to do the things that you've called us to, to, to shift mindsets so that we don't walk in the same way we walked out. The same way we walked in, we walk out of here differently because we have a different understanding of your grace, your love. The scandalous love. Scandalous. Not having any understanding. Too good to be true. But we receive it right now. <laughs>